Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm your host, Mark Yakano. I'm a managing director with Major Lindsay in Africa and its advisory services practice. I'm here today with Paula Davis, who I'll introduce in just a moment. Um, she is one of the most interesting guests that I brought on the show because we're going to talk about resilience, which is something we haven't delved into before. Paula is the founder and CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute, which is a training and consulting firm that partners with law firms, corporate legal departments, and other organizations to help them reduce burnout and build resilience at the team, leader, and organizational level. And you're going to see throughout our podcast why building things at the team, leader, and organizational level are so important. Paula left her law practice after seven years. She got a master's degree in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. As part of her postgraduate training, Paula was selected to be part of the University of Pennsylvania faculty teaching and training resilient skills to the soldiers as part of the Army's comprehensive soldier and family fitness program. While there, the Penn team trained resilient skills to more than 40,000 soldiers and their family members. She's also a well-respected author. She's the author of Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Wellbeing and Resilience, which is about burnout prevention using a teams-based approach. Beating Burnout at Work, which was nominated for the best spring 2021 book by the Next Big Idea Club, and it's been curated by such luminous professionals such as Adam Grant, Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, and Daniel Pink. In addition, her book was the number one best-selling title for 2021 for her publisher, the Wharton School Press. Paula is a guest lecturer for various Wharton School executive education programs, and her expertise has been featured in many magazines and publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, she is a contributor to Forbes, Fast Company, and Psychology Today. Paula, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I am thrilled to have you. I am so excited for this discussion, Mark. Thank you for having me on. Have I left anything out about you that you like to highlight? <laughs> no, that's a that's a that's a good summary. Uh, my uh, I've, I've had an interesting path from lawyer to recovering lawyer to uh, to all of this this work that I do now. Um, you know, with the transition through the United States Army for a little bit of of time, so it's been it's been a very interesting second act of my career for sure. Some of the topics we've discussed um, prior to, 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 to launching this episode were really based on what I would call a general theme of interconnectedness. Many weeks back, I had a guest named Libby Carino, who most of my listeners know is a well-respected contributor to the legal mental health wellness movement. And she and I talked about the dichotomy between publications and articles and thinking around why lawyers needed to practice self-care without also looking at the duty about why firms and other organizations had to practice mutual care. That creating a mentally healthy environment and being a mentally healthy professional isn't a sole endeavor. It has to be communal. And what are your thoughts on that? 
I, I love her thinking in this way. And I haven't heard it actually framed that way, like uh, interconnectivity um, care versus self-care. Um, that theme of in interconnectedness is critical. And really when we are, whether we're talking about resilience, whether we're talking about well-being, thriving, flourishing, uh, all of these engagement, all of these good things, motivation that, that we want to see, um, you know, in our legal workplaces, um, one of the biggest threads that goes through all of that is this sense of relationships and belonging and connecting to each other. Uh, and I think you could also take her remarks too and expand them a little bit into, you know, one of the messages that I've been trying to uh, definitely get out there in the legal profession over the past handful of years is that we got to start looking at a lot of these things from a systemic lens, right? So we have to, to start to not necessarily forget about, you know, those programs and things focused on, you know, individuals and what have you, they will always have their place, but we have to start seeing then how that, how that fits into how the rest of the legal system impacts how people, you know, experience their world of work, how lawyers experience their world, world of work. So I, I'm with her on this. So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you, besides the fact that I love the content you put out and your ebook was 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 tremendous, is this concept of resilience as a tool to prevent burnout. Hmm. And what intrigued me at first was resilience as a concept juxtaposed with the data that suggests that one of the causes of mental health and substance issues in the legal profession is isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. And at first, when I before I became really familiar with your work, I wondered whether resilience was focused on individual resilience, which I thought might reinforce this vision that lawyers had to do it alone. But then as I delved into your work, I saw that there was a much broader construct about what you meant to teach resilience beyond just individual training. And I'd love you to explain to our listeners, you know, the, the structure you've built, which builds, built upon your work with the army and, and, and how resilience isn't meaning that one person, you know, on his own or her own or their own individually figures out how to wither the rigors of our profession. <laughs> Such an important uh, idea here for us to unpack and work through. Because really, you know, coming out of my own burnout, which is what ended my law practice, and then my work with the Army really focused on um, at least appearing as though we were teaching individuals resilient strategies. The ultimate goal with our Army program was really a train the trainer model such that we wanted to educate the educators essentially of the Army. So the drill sergeant population and the senior non-commissioned officers, um, we wanted to arm them with these skills so that they could go back to their units and teach these skills to their lower ranking soldiers. And so Right away, even though I kind of thought about this as an individual approach, what we were really trying to do was build into the army culture and system um, this idea and this training and this skill set so that, uh, you know, soldiers at all levels really could function in a healthier and better way. And so as I was teaching resilience to individuals, you know, I kept hearing messages from them and this is across industry, but certainly within the legal profession, you know, like this is fantastic, but I have to go back and I have to work for a really tough partner or I don't feel like I'm necessarily part of my practice group and I don't know what to do. Or I feel like, um, you know, my workload is crushing me and I, I don't know how to kind of maneuver through that. And so I kept hearing all of these other 
sort of outside systemic influences, leadership related influences on this. And so I wanted to dig back into the research to see like, what could we, what could we offer? What was there out there about resilience when we start to think about it outside of just applying it to individuals and in more of a systemic way? So there's actually a really fascinating body of research talking about how we make our teams resilient. And that really resonated for me for a whole host of reasons, but in part because I felt like now I could offer something I could teach something where individuals just didn't feel like they had to shoulder the entire burden on themselves, as you were talking about. Uh, and there's, you know, even though we may not necessarily be great at talking in teams language in the legal profession, uh, you know, I think that we've come a long way in that respect. And, you know, we orient ourselves in practice groups and we certainly, you know, work in small teams, uh, you know, to, to facilitate our work. So this notion of building resilient teams really, really resonated with the lawyers that I was talking about. And as I started to look at it, I thought to myself, wow, you know, if we're looking also at burnout, for example, again, we think about it as just this individual failing of stress management when there's really so much other stuff in our work system that drives whether someone experiences burnout. So I thought, wow, could this, could this idea of resilience in a systemic way, resilience in a team way, maybe help us start to understand how we at least tackle that problem as well. And so that's the really the basis of my book. And what I wanted to dig into was to find into the research and discover, you know, what really are the pathways to help us if we're going to look at more of a holistic way at this issue, where do we need to focus? What are some of the things that we need to start educating leaders on as well? How do we start to maneuver our teams collectively so that we really can increase the capacity for people to um, you know, navigate adversity, challenge, setback, failure, obstacles, whatever word you want to, whatever word you want to put in there. And so that's been fascinating for me to be able to kind of discover that intersection and and educate and put that out there into the legal world. So one of the thoughts or phrases that ran through my head as I was reading your book was, I sort of formed this conclusion that you were advocating for what I call cascading a culture of resilience mm -hmm. from the top down and from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. That it was really kind of uh, concurrent you know, helping individuals develop resiliency skills, helping leadership become more resilient and helping them articulate the language of how you become resilient so that there was sort of continuous reinforcement throughout the ecosystem. Is that a fair takeaway from your book? Yes, that is that is a lovely, I, I wish I could have stated it as eloquently as you just stated it, but yes, that is that is absolutely a fair takeaway. And I think this is one of the things so I, it's one of the things that I hope we're starting to understand in the legal profession, um, and it's slowly starting to go in that direction. But I think when the well-being conversation first started to happen in earnest around 2017, 2018 or so, um, you know, very much our reaction was, let's get a lot of that individual, you know, education and training out there and what have you. Uh, and so I've seen great progress in the teams concept come along. I think where we still need to start to understand and fortify uh, within our legal, uh, you know, within firms and within corporate legal departments and what have you is the notion of organizational resilience, that, that the big organization itself can also, the firm itself, the organization itself can also be developing its resilience. So I've had a chance to 
you know, talk at that level with a handful of firms, but it's still, you know, we're still kind of trying to figure out kind of how to, how to make that happen. But it's when you start to look at it at all of those levels that you really can see some very powerful things coming together with this concept. Well, one of the things I wanted to follow up with you on is the notion of teams, Mm -hmm. because you know, I spent 20 years, 20 plus years practicing law and, you know, there were case teams and yes, there were practice groups, but very rarely did I see in either my firm or any firm where those practice groups really functioned in a truly integrated way. So as you look at sort of team building at the, the law firm level, one of the things that sort of came to me was it's almost, it lends itself really well to a legal department, I think, because they tend to function more interdependently. What are your thoughts on that? I see that as well. Uh, I think the concept of teaming is more intuitively felt and more intuitively understood when I do talk to corporate legal departments um, for a whole host of reasons. I remember from my in-house days, um, that notion of teaming and just you know having things and the organization oriented as teams just was such a naturally occurring part of the language and the way that people interacted and functioned. Uh, and so when I talk to lawyers in law firms, I <laughs> when I first started to talk about this intersection, I saw a lot of like blank stares coming back at me because yeah. I would ask them to take my resilient teams inventory, thinking about a team that they <laughs> that they worked on and they I mean, really went into their heads right away. And they were asking me a million questions about what I meant by a team. And was this a team like, you know, so helping them understand that there's various different types of teams that you're a part of. You may be part of a practice group. You're part of the firm as a whole. You're part of, you know, maybe one specific deal that you're working on right now with four people. Um, You may be working on a completely different piece of litigation or a deal with a different set of six people, for example. And so, Helping to educate a little bit about what we even mean by teaming, I think, is important in the legal profession. And then understanding that teaming is really a verb, that we team, that we don't have to necessarily think of it's the same three or four or 10 or 20 people all the time who we are part of a team with, but that that morphs and changes depending on what type of work we're doing and what type of matter that we're working on. And it could it could be one team two weeks and then completely shifting and changing um, multiple times going forward. And so laying that foundation and helping them just start to see a little bit about what it means to be a team and how teams function and that, you know, there's so much teaming that goes on in the profession, I think is a very good first step and a necessary first step for a lot of lawyers to, to really grab onto this intersection. And the t- the teaming approach and the value of teaching resilience to teams is effective, but it's more effective when it's tied to the culture or the commitment to build a resilient organization. If I've really dug in and interpreted your work correctly. Yes. I mean, I think any time that you can unpack a concept and have it be reinforced at all of the layers that we're talking about, so still at the individual level, but also then building into the systems pieces, that reinforcement is, I think, really where you start to see then this become part of how we do things around here, part of the culture. And so many firms that I talk to have 
the word resilience or a resilience related theme as part of their core values or as part of their marketing messaging or part of, you know, how they talk about um, orienting themselves in the world of work. Um, it just ne isn't oftentimes necessarily, you know, baked into the structure of the organization, at least not certainly from a skills based standpoint. So before we explore some of the hows, um, there's another topic that I wanted to touch upon because the data is so overwhelming that a big driver of substance abuse and depression and anxiety and mental health issues in the legal department is this feeling of alienation and loneliness. And it comes down to kind of what I think is in part the mythology of lawyers, that they're these iconic iconoclasts who have to work by themselves without needing help. There's that myth. And then, you know, inherently, there is, you know, what I would call in some cases, sort of the systemic failure of mechanisms to create inclusiveness, you know, both in terms of diversity, gender, sex, um, ethnicity, whatever, however you want to want to characterize who falls under the, you know, the diversity rubric, that those two things um, both both um, have a common denominator, which is you're in the midst of an organization and you feel isolated and alone. And you had some interesting correlations between burnout resiliency and this, what I would call chronic sense of isolation and loneliness. And I just want you to extrapolate and share a little bit of your perspective there, because I think it's, an, it's important to connect all those concepts. Yes. And I think that if we're going to look at a starting point, because there's a lot of different pathways to build resilience, there's a lot of different pathways to address and alleviate burnout and, and you know, create a lot of these well-being concepts that we're talking about and leadership concepts. One of the starting points that I advocate for is developing this notion of belonging. So belonging, relationships, inclusivity, um, appreciation, recognition, kind of all kind of traveling in the same family. Um, but I picked the word belonging because it's one of our three core psychological needs. Um, I call them your ABC needs. So there's three different, three needs that we all need at work, whether we're 75, 55, 35, 25, um, to feel a sense of motivation and um, well-being in our work. And the A is autonomy. So we need a sense of flexibility and control. The B is belonging. And I like this word so much because it gets to the fact that we have the perception that we are cared about, that we are cared for, that people have our back, that we're showing up to a team, a group, an organization, a place um, that, that matches our goals. It's where we want to be. Um, and that we're very aware of those, that we're very aware of those things. Um, and then the C is just competence or mastery, that we're in an environment that is helping us get better at developing goals that matter to us. And I like the belonging piece for a whole host of reasons. And again, this is really tied to a lot of what you're bringing up and what we're talking about. Uh, we have a loneliness problem in the legal profession. And so I'm sure, you know, when you've unpacked this on other, on other um, podcasts, 
you know, they, uh, there was a study that was done, I believe in 2018, that actually looked at a number of different professions and found that lawyers had the highest rates of loneliness compared to a number of other professions that they looked at. So we have a little bit of data showing, you know, that this, this is really something that's tied to the legal profession. Um, another interesting thing, another interesting piece of data, um, not tied to the legal profession, but through the Gallup organization, looking at um, you know, their engagement work, one of their questions in their engagement survey is, do you have a best friend at work, which so <laughs> sounds very squishy, and it sounds like, oh, isn't that lovely, we're all going to hug now, um, and they get a lot of, they get a lot of flack for the way that they've worded that, but what they found is that it's one of the more, ro mo more robust predictors of not only engagement, but resilience, so people who say very confidently, yes, I have a best friend at work, uh, have much higher, it's like seven times higher rates of engagement and much higher times rates of resilience. Uh, and then another piece of research that I wanted to call people's attention to, and you may have talked about this as well with other folks, is the Harvard study of adult development. And so if folks don't know about that, um, the head of the study right now is Robert Waldinger, and he has a wonderful TED Talk, so it's a great place to start. But he just co-authored a book called The Good Life, really publishing and talking about um, this really important study that's been ongoing since the 1930s. So, so we don't have, I mean, longitudinal research is this fantastic, whenever we can get it, you know, it's, it's a fantastic uh, ability for us to really mine some details about the way, um, you know, well-being unfolds itself, and we don't always or rarely get that. And so with this study, they've been able to show in, in terms of just, you know, how, how we age, how, you know, our levels of happiness as we continue to, you know, go on through our lives, what really influences that and what they found very conclusively through all of these decades of interviews and studies and, and work with all of these people is that it comes down to our relationships, relationships they have found by far and away are the biggest predictor of happiness and aging well and resilience as we start to you know go through our lives so there's just so many i offer those studies up and those ideas in part because whether it's tied to the legal profession or whether it's just generally we're talking about something good that we need to have in our workplace system this notion of building belonging and relationships um, becomes really really i think a huge focal point for us to be looking at. And honestly, you know, I don't know that lawyers are necessarily so great at that aspect of things, right? It obviously, we talked about the loneliness piece, but lawyers tend to be very analytical, very head-based. We like to gravitate to the relationships that we've already formed instead of kind of doing the hard getting to know you bit with brand new people. Um, and that's not to say that lawyers don't like other people and that we can't do that, but I think we're just oriented in a way that makes it a little bit more difficult. And then as you mentioned, we tend to work in silos, even though we're part of a team, we think that, you know, gosh, this is my client and it's, you know, my responsibility. And it, we come back to sort of this individual lens an individual notion of I got to shoulder most of this myself and we forget about the utility and the power of the team. And so for all sorts of reasons, I think that this 
this needing to tackle and address this sense of isolation and feeling alone and loneliness and belonging and inclusivity and whatever word we want to put to it is a very, very powerful starting point when it comes to particularly when it comes to our conversation about resilience. It's just such a big pathway to build resilience that um, I don't think we can get there until we really meaningfully talk about it. So I've actually thought of a question that I hadn't even planned to ask. Mm -hmm. um, all of us in the legal profession and in MLA, where we're the largest legal recruiting firm in the world, we see this vivid debate about coming back to the office. And, you know, we see the traditionalists who believe with, with some merit that part of the building a firm culture and part of the you know apprenticeship and learning processes requires in-person feedback and then we have different generational forces who feel like they do their best work when they can work wherever they want in an environment that's soothing but you know as we as we know that there'll always be sort of a remote component somehow begrudgingly and as the demographic demographics of firm leadership change I think there'll be fewer barriers of entry to, to having, you know, a remote element built into the law firm life. How do you cultivate a best friend at work when you're not physically at work? <laughs> uh, so I, first of all, I love the dichotomy that you are teeing up right now because um, this comes up in almost every conversation that I talk to when I get a chance to talk to mid-level on up really, um, you know, leaders in the legal profession. And right now I go back to that ABC framework that I talked about. There's a big tension and there's really a struggle between the A, autonomy and the B, belonging. How do we wrestle with giving that sense of flexibility and control? Because we had it in spades during the pandemic, we were doing everything remotely and virtually. And so we got a taste of what that felt like, right? I got to control my day maybe a little bit more. I was probably working longer because my boundaries were erased. But, you know, if I wanted to throw some laundry in at two o'clock and then go for a run and come back and, you know, be present for my four o'clock conference call, I could do that. And nobody cared because I still got my work done and no one was like staring at me and kind of breathing down my neck about it. And so, so there's that piece that we have to preserve. Um, but we also have to then, I think, rethink what does it mean to connect with other people? What does it mean to cultivate relationships now? Um, do we have to do it in person? Um, what's in it for me? I think we need to be more intentional about educating and spelling out for maybe younger generations why it's necessary and, and how you do that. And so I think there's a lot of rethinking that we have to go through um, to help us understand what does it mean to connect and how can we probably with a lot more intentionality than we're giving it right now, um, start to be able to cultivate relationships in this new normal. Well, it's interesting in the sense that as I, you know, I don't actively participate in much social media, mm -hmm. but I do follow a lot of social media, especially people, you know, in a younger demographic that are building sort of in an entrepreneurial way businesses. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of women in the fitness space, for example, are building some brilliant businesses. A lot of people are building, building, building really cool stuff. But one thing that struck me is, is you get your demographic gets younger. They sort of come to the party with a gig mentality mentality. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. a gig economy mentality and a side hustle mentality. Um, and so as I look at sort of the future of law, setting aside legal technology where I spend my day job, I wonder like, how does, um, how does this entrepreneurial generation continue to feed the vibrancy of firms and how do you coalesce your own culture? Because I think that's a huge issue. I, I you know, because I believe you're right. You have to, from the top down, create a culture of resilience. But how do you create a consult, consulture of resilience as you get into more entrepreneurial, um, free thinking um, folks as the demographic shifts in the profession? And, and there are less traditionalists. Yeah. It's a crazy question, but... It's just something that's been popping into my mind lately. I think it's a fascinating intersection to think about. And I've always thought that innovation, the conversation around innovation, innovation dovetails nicely with the conversation of resilience. Because if you are going to approach the practice of law and the advancement of what our profession is going to look like from an entrepreneurial mindset, Um, as an entrepreneur myself, you know, you understand that being an entrepreneur and trying new things out and innovating and having these types of discussions is going to involve failure. It's going to involve, oops, we did the wrong thing. We're going to have to try something else out or, um, you know, which isn't to say you can't do, you know, have a lot of intentionality with all of this. It's not like we're going to wing it and see what happens. Um, But that's hard, I think, for traditionalists to get their arms around this notion of, what do you mean we're going to try it out and things might not go right and we might need to pivot or we might need to, to do something else? Like we've got to think it all through so that when we like do whatever it is that we're talking about, it goes perfectly and it goes right. And that's just not the way, you know, the, the practice of law is too complex and challenging and running a business in this space is just too, um, you know, complex and challenging for that to happen. And so I don't know, I guess it remains to be seen, but I am looking forward to that mindset being more present within the legal profession, because I think that's how we might start to see some of these cultural pieces that we might need to tackle, but have been reticent to tackle, start to change, I think, for the better in a little bit of a sense. So one thing I, 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 I think needs to happen is developing a strategy and having an understanding of how digital connectivity can then become personal connectivity. Mm. And I'll give you an example that's not related to the law. It's kind of personal. My daughter's um, in the final stages of um, her PhD and doctoral work. And somehow besides having field research, writing a dissertation, she decided to take up needle pointing. Oh, wow. And she got into a spat with a woman who ran a Facebook group who was much older. And so she said, that's fine. I'm going to start my own Facebook group and I'm done with you. She has 2000 members. She's been to seven weddings, couple of baptisms. And there, and, and those people are people that she had met through her needle point group. And the wedding was the first time they'd met, but they had developed that closeness through a shared interest in the mutuality. Yes. And it was fascinating to me because I think about this, you know, this, this debate about how law firms are going to deal with, you know, returning to the office or hybrid work. I thought there's a case where digital connectivity 
granted in a non-professional setting and built around a shared hobby, translated into personal connectivity and that concept of friendship. I don't know what the answer is, but I suspect somewhere there's a lesson to be learned there. I think so. And I mean, it, it sort of gets back to the question you asked about how do you then cultivate a, cultivate a best friend at work in this type of environment? And maybe this is part of the answer, right? Maybe part of it is being more intentional about creating a digital space uh, for people to congregate and to gather and to collaborate. And then from that, allowing, you know, different levels of interaction and potentially friendship to come from it. I think digital tools and the, this, the, the idea of digital, digital connectivity, I think is fantastic. I think we just have to be careful that that's not the only method that we're, that we're seeking to form and create relationships from. Uh, I know I've certainly, had the advantage of, you know, meeting people, you know, in a, in a digital way and then becoming friends with them as well. Um, I guess maybe I'm a little bit more, maybe I'm a little, just a little bit more old school in terms of preferring to have that happen in a face-to-face -face or inter, you know, just physical. You, you and I both, uh, we're, we're both part of the visceral, <laughs> visceral generation. But, yes. but and yeah, so, you know, it's interesting because I, I remember talking months and months ago with an entrepreneur and sort of legal design uh, process expert named Marty Feinstone, who has built like a virtual co-working space where people could actually, you know, work in a virtual lounge and, you know, communicate with people. And, you know, on their screen is the, you know, appearance of, you know, being in a being in a, in a shared space. And it, I, I, at first I was like, I don't know how that would work, but now I'm beginning to think, well, that could be a component of an overall architecture of a culture. Yes. And I think that, you know, that's one of the interesting things coming out of all of this is that we are sort of, law firms have to recognize kind of like a non-binary culture. It's, um, it's, it's, there's an alchemy to constructing, you know, different components of the ecosystem that enable people to connect in different in, in, in many different through many different modalities. And we have to really start to broaden our idea about what connectivity entails and how we go about doing it. Because, you know, in, up until the pandemic, it was always, we're just in the office and this is just how you connect with each other. And this is how relationships form. And that's completely changed. And so I think that, uh, that's a big realization that there are going to be multiple different pathways for us to get to the same positive point. Uh, but we have to be open, I think, to, to hearing that this is going to mean, you know, probably doing it differently than we've ever imagined doing it before. And, and that's okay. <laughs> what really made me think about some of this was, was really reflecting on past experiences where you could be at an event or part of an organization yet feel alone. Yes. Was this tension between being in the same space, but yet having that, and you referenced this earlier in the podcast, gravitational pull to those you don't know versus the mechanism of being not physically in the space, but having modalities that put you with people you don't know because you're not physically gravitating to the offices you visit every day to say hello or to have lunch. So I think there's 
I think there's room, you know, as we continue to think through this model for more interconnectedness, just built through a, a, an interesting mosaic of, of, of approaches. Yes. And I love that word mosaic. And I, that gives me a nice visual about, you know, this lovely puzzle of sorts um, coming together that are different ways of, of you know, thinking about this and, and implementing that. So as we talk about the work you've been doing, um, this is sort of a, probably a trick question, but not intended to be. Mm-hmm. As we talk about this mosaic, how have you thought through the architecture of your operating thesis of cascading organizational culture building of resilience and the hybrid environment we're in? Because I think it's an interesting model as the as as, as the work model has shifted some. How, how Where it'll end up, we don't know, but we know it is different. How have you thought of the application of this training? I mean, when you're at the army, all the soldiers were at the army. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we were all in person and they were all physically, you know, physically there. Accounted for. And they were accounted for. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think that for me, the entry point into my work consistently seems to come back to this notion of teaming and to the pathways to develop resilience as a team together. Uh, and I, it's been interesting because as I've looked at, you know, how do you effectively lead hybrid teams, whether it's through a resilience lens or, you know, more of a well-being lens or just a pure leadership lens, um, the same pieces of the puzzle kind of keep coming back to the fore, regardless of whether folks are together in person or whether we're just scattered all over the place. And so for me, um, you know, a big entry point, if you're talking about now kind of transition, transitioning into how do we operationalize some of this or what do we actually teach? Um, you know, first and foremost, a big layer or a foundation to doing this well, especially resilience at the team level is building psychological safety or trust. Uh, and in doing that, whether you're together as a team or whether you are hybrid and scattered all around the world as a team becomes, I think, really one of the one of the big first steps we have to look at. So there's that piece of the puzzle, but then layering onto that, what we've been talking about, you know, this notion of belonging and uh, connection and interconnectivity um, becomes a very quick second piece that we also have to be taking a look at and considering. And so it's really kind of those two pieces. And I don't know that it matters where people are located, but that once you start to build some of these foundations and now talking about them as we've just unpacked in a different way and in a mosaic way and in an intentional way um, really helps, I, I think, to to kind of get us to that resilience point, regardless of where, you know, what kind of method or model we're looking at in terms of how we orient our work. Yeah, I think that raises a really good point because when we talk about organizational change from the top down, I think we tend to think of that in a sort of centralized way. And if, I, if I've parsed your language and you're thinking correctly, we can, we can do that, but in a segmented way where you're working with teams at one level, teams at another level, so it's not as if you're doing a centralized distribution of training, but you're doing a lot of um, a lot of training at, 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 at micro levels that when you put all the pieces together on a macro level, create a culture because the training thread has been consistent. That's exactly it. 
I love I love how you you restate all of, of my my thinking in such a wonderful way. Um, no, but that that was really my thought as I as I was trying to visualize, you know, when I was writing my book, um, how to take teams and apply them in a way to help slow burnout down and build motivation and engagement and resilience and all of these good things that we want to see. Um, I just think it's it just sounds daunting to me and almost too unwieldy to start to think about it as how do we change the overall big C culture in an organization. And for me, as you just stated, it, it's starting with the little mini systems that exist within the big system, such that if you get the little mini systems all going in the same direction, that's when I think you can start to see some inertia and some, some change or whatever you know, goal it is that you're looking to see or address in your organization start to happen is when, when these little systems all you know, travel in the same direction. I think the ripple effects can be you know, amazing. Sometimes you can actually build from the middle, right? Mm-hmm. You can manage up. And you can manage down, but you can build from the middle where you have successful pilots that deliver tangible results. Well, this has been an absolutely phenomenal conversation, and I really thank you for your time. I always want to know um, that my guests have an opportunity to say at the end of every podcast where you can be found. So where can we find you on social media and where can we find your books because I will tell you, I read I read your ebook on my on the train up to Washington, and I was like, oh my God, this is the best few minutes I've spent. It wasn't a long read, but it was so impactful and so worth it. And I want people to be able to find your stuff. So where can they find you? Thank you. So my website is really my central hub for pretty much everything that I do. So that is stressandresilience.com. And specifically, if you go to the on-demand resource center page, you will be able to find the ebook that you were just talking about. So it's called From Army Strong to Lawyer Strong. So it's really unpacking my journey of learning resilience through the military and its applications within the legal profession and distilling all of the research that we know about the utility and the benefits of resilience at work. So that specific page will help a ton. You can also find my book, um, Beating Burnout at Work there. You can find my book, Beating Burnout at Work on Amazon. Uh, And then LinkedIn is my social media platform of choice. So just Paula Davis on LinkedIn. Uh, It's where I publish all of my Forbes articles to begin with. Everything eventually ends up on my website, but... Um, that's where a lot of my uh, initial pieces of thinking and research that I post and what have you all start there. So, so the website is the best spot, stressandresilience.com, followed by LinkedIn and then followed by Amazon for my book. Well, Paula, thank you for a fabulous session. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.